You know, if you want to see great things happen in life, you have to have power, and we all know that. I mean, you, you can't do great things by yourself. And there are different kinds of power that people in the world want. Um, people want the power of money. And I'm not knocking that. Money has power. But there are people that feel like, and maybe you feel like tonight, if I have money power, I could do a whole lot more. Um, and then there's the power that comes from being connected and having connections. And there's the feeling that if you were con rightly connected, you could get into the right university or you could get into the right uh, business or if you had the right connections, perhaps you could achieve starting your own company or this or that. And then there's the connection that comes from personal charisma. Uh, we all know, we've seen the statistics on how that if you are a woman, you have certain attributes and you can go further. If you're a man, you're six feet taller, taller, you can, you can do X, Y, and Z. And there's all that study on that. So there's the, the idea that if I had the, the power of personal giftedness, then I could do great things. Tonight, though, I want to talk to you about what I believe is perhaps the most important power. And this is a, you know, the thing of it is, ultimately, if you want to achieve anything great in life, you have to have the power of God. And I really believe this is one of the elements of the power that God gives. Definitely, in order to be able to do what we need to do, you will need the strength of God. But I really believe the greatest power in life to achieving great things is staying power. And I've taught on this before, but I want to teach on it again tonight. And when I went to California, I had a chance to do something, yeah, taking a week off. I had a chance to do something I don't have the opportunity to do as much as I like to do, and that's read history. I love history. And being a leader, I love history of American leaders especially. And so I was just reading uh, voraciously on some of the greatest American leaders, and especially presidents. And I don't usually recommend books, but if you're looking for a great book to read on American presidents, it's historic, historian Michael Beschloss's book, Presidential Courage. It's a phenomenal book because he talks about the presidents who had to make very unpopular decisions and he starts with George Washington. Most, most Americans really don't know much about their history. You know, we just sort of have this cursory overview. And, and a lot of historians agree that George Washington was the greatest American president. But what you might not know is that he went through some times of deep and dark unpopularity in his second term, so much so that some of the soldiers who fought with him were wishing for his speedy death because he was taking an unpopular course, which later proved to be right. But as I began to study these great American leaders, what I discovered was that the greatest power to make difference, a difference in our world was simply the ability to stay when things got difficult. And the strange thing about it is as I got home and I began to once again engage and talk to Christians, I realized again how important that is in the Christian life, the ability to stay. I truly believe that the people who accomplish the most are not the people who have the power of money or the power of connections or the power of personal charisma or even, as much as I respect it, the power of education. But the people who are the ones who see great things happen are the people who are willing to stay. Um, you know, there are situations that we all want to get into, and many of us have gotten into them, education, uh, marriage, uh, parenting, a ministry, um, and I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there are several stages to any important pursuit. First of all, there is the stage of romance. 
You know, and I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about romance of a man and a woman. I'm talking about romance with just the good feeling of the excited feeling about something new. There's the romance associated with a new job. There's the romance associated with uh, having that first baby. But then the second stage that comes along is ordinariness. Now, how many of you have discovered that? That, you know, and again, I, I've met people through the years, and I guess I've experienced this somewhat myself. If like they're buying a new house, it's like it's the biggest thing in their world, and two years later, it's just the house. You know, it's like, oh, I can't believe I've, I've got the job of a lifetime, and, and there's all this projection onto that job of how enormous it's going to be to get this job, and then after two years, it's just the job. It's just the, you know, it's just the grind. Because what happens is we go from the place of ordinariness to or romance to ordinariness. Do you, have you ever thought about celebrities? Do you know why celebrities, I think, are so unhappy? It's because most people treat them like celebrities. But the problem is anytime anyone gets close to them, a husband or a wife or kids, they find out this person's just like anybody else. And after a while, the people that they are closest to in their family and marriage, they start treating them as ordinary. And the next thing you know, the celebrity's getting rid of this wife and going after someone else who won't experience the ordinariness anymore. So after the romance, there's the ordinariness. And then stage three is difficulty. And that is when all of a sudden it's hard to do what you got into. How many of you have discovered, you know, when you have that new baby, it's sort of like, oh, at the hospital and all our family is up there, and like, wow, it's the most wonderful thing, and it's just, we're just like floating on a cloud, and then you go home, and after a few weeks, the baby can't sleep at night, and you're wondering, what did you get yourself into? And then they turn into a teenager. <laughs> and boy, you know what the difficulty is at that point, right? Mark Twain said, when a boy turns 13, put him in a box, cut a hole big enough for him to breathe. So when he turns 17, plug up the hole. <laughs> and then, okay, you, you follow me on the stages? Romance, ordinariness, difficulty, and then you will come to a place of seeming, this is, in anything great, you will come to a place of seeming impossibility. It is the feeling that I cannot go another step. But while you're listening to that, let me give you the final stage of great pursuits, and that is Harvest harvest. And here's the challenge. The challenge in staying power is if you can stay through the ordinariness, if you can stay through the difficulty, and if you can even stay when it's seemingly impossible, ultimately you will experience a harvest. Now, real quickly, I want to just pull over to the side of the road and I want us to have a disclaimer because when I'm talking, to think, talking about something like staying power, there could be an inadvertent hearing and someone could be in a, in a very dangerous situation. Maybe you're, maybe you're in, in a relationship or you're married to an abuser and I don't want anyone to hear, well, Mark said I should just stay. No, no. If you're in a dangerous situation, like Henry Cloud said in his great book, sometimes there are necessary endings. But I just want to talk about us in the general sense tonight and say that if you're in a great pursuit, if God has called you to do something great, and ultimately, if you're in God's will, then you will experience the stages that I just talked about in your marriage, in your parenting, in your career, in your ministry. You're going to experience all of those stages. And you will reveal, and I will reveal, in how we react to those stages whether or not or how much staying power we have. So here's the thing. When you think about the people in your life who are going through the stages, notice, if you will, how many people will check out in the ordinariness stage. 
In other words, when it's romantic, they're excited about it. But when all of a sudden the romance is over and the sort of ordinariness sets in, it's like, well, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And here's the thing. I've watched this with ministry. And I don't see it so much at New Spring because New Spring's a different kind of church. But I've watched it in ministry sometimes. People, and I've actually watched it with, with people in career ministry. It's sort of like in the early part, it's sort of like I'm just going to float on a cloud and I'm going to do this job for God and I'm just going to, every day I'm going to feel like I'm breathing rarefied air. And I will just tell you, ministry is as difficult as anything else. And there will be an ordinariness that sets in. And I've watched people say, well, I guess it's not for me. Well, some people check out in the ordinariness stage. Most people will check out in the difficulty stage. And that's when romance goes to ordinariness and ordinariness goes to difficulty. It's sort of like, well, you know what? If it's difficult, I must be doing the wrong thing. And so because it's difficult, I'm going to check out. Well, the few people that get left over after that, almost all of them will check out when they come to a place of seeming impossibility. It's sort of like, well, God, you know what? I stayed when it was ordinary. I stayed when it got difficult. But here I am at a Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is chasing me. And so consequently, because it seems to be impossible right now, surely it's your will for me to check out and quit. Because after all, God wants me to be happy. And I'm not happy in a moment of seeming impossibility. If you can stay when things are seemingly impossible doing God's will, then indeed you have what I believe is the most important power of all. And it's the power that anybody can have. You have staying power. You have staying power. You know, I gave up long ago on having the other powers. I'm never going to have money. I'm never going to have great education. I started pastoring when I was 20, so all I have is an undergraduate. I just got busy. God's never, I mean, it's every day since then I've been doing God's work. So I'm never going to have what the world would consider a world-class education. I don't know that I'm ever going to have charisma. I think that's passed. At 61, I think I've sort of passed that day. But I can tell you that God has allowed me to have staying power. And I cherish that more than anything else. Oh, there, there have been times, I mean, I'm in my 33rd year here at New Spring. I was being interviewed in Kansas City for a broadcast. And, I was, and this was, it was at a seminary up there. And my friend Johnny Hunt and I both had been at our churches 28 years at the time. And we were both being asked about longevity. And, and uh, every once in a while, I run across this broadcast on the internet, you know. And they were, they were asking, what's it been like to be at the same church for 28 years? And I said, well, it hasn't been the same church. It's been about 10 or 12 different churches. And that's true. There have been times when I felt like quitting. And in the process, God has taught me seven rules of staying power or seven laws of staying power. And these are things that God has taught me. And I want to share them with you tonight because I feel like we live in a world today in which people are not serious enough about staying. It's like, as long as it's fun, I'll be here. As long as it's not difficult, I'll stay in it. But at the moment when it gets to be difficult, then I'm out. And in, and in that process, God has taught me the seven rules of staying power. And I want to teach them to you tonight tonight. And if 
I've shared some, I will have shared some of these things before in various messages, but if so, I think they'll still be really beneficial for you tonight. And here's the first rule of staying power. Any, any truly worthwhile quest will present a quit now moment. Whether you're talking about marriage, or you're talking about child rearing, or you're talking about just anything that you're doing that's worthwhile in life, and the reason why there will be a quit now moment is that the worthwhile things are the difficult things in life. They will always be the upstream things. And any truthwhile pursuit will have at least one, if not several, quit now moments. I'll refer back to that for the rest of the talk. But let me just remind us that you and I live in a culture that teaches us to worship comfort. Here in the United States... We are more into comfort than any place in the world. We love comfort, and we love things being easy. In fact, if you will, just watch commercials or read, just read you know, commercials for products and see how many of them tell us that if we buy their product that we can take it easy and we can be at comfort. We're taught to worship comfort. But guys, let me just tell you this, and especially if you're young, please listen to me. There is a word for a life of comfort, and the word is wasted. If you and I always have to be comfortable, we will waste our lives. We have been so blessed in the United States to have financial prosperity. And I think the sad thing about it is many Americans live out their lives being comfortable or as comfortable as they can possibly be. They never stretch or reach. And it's like the ultimate, you know, heaven for Americans is being able to retire early in some place that's beautiful and that you can just sort of veg for the rest of your life. If you think about it, heaven to Americans has been being able to sit down and do nothing. And yet what I discover is the people who sit down and do nothing, especially when I visit places as I did this last week where a lot of retired people are. And there's nothing wrong with being retired, especially if you can find something to do in your life that enhances your mission and retirement can be the greatest time of life. But what I discover oftentimes is I discover people that have a lot of money and they have like spent their whole lives trying to get to a place where they can take it easy and do nothing. And all that happens is they are just simply running out the clock, kneeling on the ball, waiting for life to end. Here's the second rule of staying power, and this one is very important to me. A life of quitting early will leave you with a series or an inventory of unfinished business. This is one of the saddest things that I ever see as a leader and as a pastor, is I meet people that if I hear their life story, it is just an inventory of starts and stops, starts and stops. It's unfinished business. Do you know the average tenure of a pastor in the United States is somewhere around two years? And just, I mean, as I talked to two pastors today, one in Ohio and, and one in the western part of the country, I talk to pastors every day. And it's like I hear from many pastors, not the ones I talk to today, but I hear from many pastors, well, it's difficult, so I must need to look for another church. And, and I cannot tell you how many pastor friends I have, and their history is of unfinished business, of starts and stops. I know people that, that, that they're that way in relationships, you know, they have several marriages, and it's like when it got to be difficult, then they checked out, and they have starts, and they have stops. I, I think I've told you this story before, but when I was a kid growing up, what I wanted more than anything else was a set of encyclopedias, and if you're under 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but back, there was actually a day when there were things called books, and they had like spines and covers and pages, and, um, and I know I'm just like really talking about prehistoric stuff to a lot of you, but um, you know, 
I, I wanted a set of encyclopedias at home because every now I had to do my homework. I had to do it at the library at school, and my parents couldn't afford encyclopedias. Um, so when I went, and this is really going back in time. You have to be really, really old to, to even know what I'm talking about. But back in the day, grocery stores liked to like um, have some kind of promotion. And so in order to get you in, uh, they would like sell encyclopedias, one volume at a time. That's to get you in for 26 straight weeks to their store. And, and most of those volumes, and again, you got to realize this is a long time ago. Most of the volumes were like $3 a piece, which I didn't have the money for. But they would always sell the A volume for like 49 cents. And I saw this happen a number of times. Now, the weird thing is, if you were to get into my room at my house when I'm 12 years old growing up, I have a whole bunch of A volumes. That's a fact. I mean, boy, if I got an assignment and it started with A, I was ready to go. I could multi-source it. And I know a whole lot of people in their life is just an inventory of A volumes. Well, I started this, but then that happened. I started this, or I met this girl and met this guy and dated him, but then I met this guy and met this girl, and, and like, you know, I tried this career, and then I tried that career, and they have an inventory of unfinished business. Listen, guys, I'm just bearing my heart tonight. As pastor of this great church, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine this because New Spring today is a wonderful church to pastor. But going through the changes through the years, I almost called it a birthing process, but I don't know what it's like to give birth. I've just been there when it's been done. So you ladies are going to look at me and say, Mark, you have no idea what you're talking about. And you'd be right. But I want to tell you, there were some times when I felt like quitting. Yes. Oh, yeah. There were times when it got brutally hard, but there were three things that kept me from quitting. Number one, I believed with all my heart I was in God's will. I told God I'd go anywhere he sent me except Kansas when I was growing up in Texas. And I meant that. That was a vow before God. <laughs> but he sent me here. And now I love it. But I'm just telling you, I always knew, even when things were so difficult that they were unspeakably difficult, I felt like God had called me here. And the second thing that I, I believed was that there was unfinished business here. You know, that's the thing. There were so many times I really did feel like quitting. I felt like I deserved to be able to quit. But every time I got close, I always had the feeling that God still had work left to do. And the third thing was, at least before I quit, I wanted to see it. And by the time God did his work, I didn't want to quit anymore. I'm just sharing my heart. The two times that were the most difficult were the relocation out here, which was eight years in length and always impossible. I, I promise you, you can ask Billy Poor, executive pastor, who was my right arm in those days. It was impossible for seven years and 51 weeks. I mean that. I mean, not hard, impossible. Now, God did a series of miracles, and I've talked to you about some of those. <laughs> Oh, but it was difficult, you know. I think probably only like 5%, 10% of our church really wanted to move. There were about 30% that were like, well, the pastor thinks it's a good idea, so I guess there's nothing we can do about it. And there were about 30% that thought it was a terrible idea, but we were moving. And I don't know how many percent are left over, but the ones that were left over were really mean. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. There were a handful of you who were there in those days. Oh, my goodness. 
And I remember <laughs> in our old location, I'll tell you this for a reason, my office was just, you made a right turn and you walked into the worship center, but outside my office was a long expanse of wall and we had renderings hung up of the new property drawings of this, well, a piece of this campus, worship center offices and a rendering and all those were pictured outside my office. And when it got so difficult, I'd walk out in those pictures and I'd look at them and I'd think, I wonder if this is ever going to be, I wonder if I'm going to see this. And then I remember when things got really, really ugly. And um, <laughs> it was, the, pro- the project itself was hard enough, but the ugliness was just almost too much to deal with. And, and these were good people. They just, you know, moving 12 miles, and they thought I wanted to move over here to the middle of a Milo field. There was nothing out here. Think about that tonight when you get in traffic. <laughs> By the way, this is a lesson I would teach leaders, and I'll just throw it out to you. If you wait until the situation justifies the action, you don't need a leader. And you probably won't be able to execute the, the change. But in any event, long story short, <laughs> I'd gone to... Uh, Tennessee to do a conference for a church. And the pastor of that church was, we were getting ready to go out on the stage and he said, he started talking about a, one of the largest churches in America is a legacy church and a famous church. And he said, well, you know, they don't have a pastor anymore. And I said, yeah, I know about that. And he said, well, you know who they're looking at? And I said, no, I have no idea who they're looking at. And he said, well, they're looking at you. And I said, you got to be kidding me. And I said, you know, for one thing, it's a different state, a long way away, and I'm not connected to that church. He said, yeah, he said, they're looking at you. And I said, well, I'm not interested. Anyway, came back to the church, and um, it, was, it was Sunday morning service, and, and I was just kind of going over my notes one more time, and I was walking out of my office, and going to make the right turn and go in the worship center, and all of a sudden, I saw a group of people, there were about 10 of them, standing there looking at those pictures on the wall, and I didn't recognize any of them. So I was accustomed to having visitors, even though our church was only about 600 people in those days. And I said, well, uh, I'm, I'm Pastor Mark. I'm here at church, and, and uh, are you folks, um, do you live here in Wichita? And they said, no. Look kind of embarrassed. And I said, well, are you you're visiting here? Yeah. And then, well, we have a lot of, Boeing was there here in those days. And I said, are you here with a company? And, no. And I said, well, do you have family here? No. And I thought, well, that's about all the questions I know to ask. <laughs> So at that point, I just started telling them about the new building, started telling them some of the miracles that God had done. And all this time, this church, and I started to, started to name the state, all this church kept, all the time the church was trying to reach out to me, and they would ask me, would, would you come? And I would, no, I'm not going to come. I'm not interested. And, and they said, well, we don't understand. You know, this is a great church, a very large church. And, and I'm like, no, 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 I, I'm just not interested. And so after a while, they got creative. They said, would you come and do a conference for us? I said, I'll come and do a conference for you after you call a pastor. And I did. I actually did several conferences for this church. The first time I was ever doing a conference for this church, after I got through with the talk, there were a lot of people gathered around, and there was the same group of people I had met in Wichita. They came over to talk to me. They were a pulpit committee, and they just said, we just want to apologize to you. We met you outside your office. And he said, I got to tell you something. He said, you know, we all went back to our hotel, and we met in the conference room, and we said, you know, he's who we want. And this is one of the kindest compliments anybody's ever paid me. And he said, he's who we want, but we could never get him. He's too happy. And that's true. You know, 
You know what kept me from even considering what, and again, leaders around the country looked at me like I was crazy, and, and I thought I might have been. They all looked at me like I was crazy. Why would you not want to leave and take a church many times the size of this church? But I believe God had called me here. And I believed that there was unfinished work to do. And I wanted to stay around and see it. Did you know today, New Spring is many times the size of that church. And you know what? If I had left, I would have left behind all the grief I was dealing with at the time on the relocation. <laughs> My income would have been several times what it was here. I mean, I would have had a lot of what this world calls important. But I never would have gotten to see New Spring. You hearing me tonight? I got nine minutes left. I'm only in, what, two laws? <laughs> I love teaching this stuff. I really do. Law number three. I got three. I got nine minutes to do five laws. I may just have to do this online for the part I don't get to. Is that okay? We tend to overestimate our own strength and underestimate God's. That's true. You know, this is what produces the quit now moments. If you want to think, anytime you're in a quit now moment, what's, what's going on is we are factoring everything. We are determined, we're, we're, we're factoring in our strength and what we presume that God can do. And when we do the accounting, we come up with a deficit situation in our minds. It is because we tend to overestimate our own strength and underestimate God's. But the reason why we're failing is our resources were never what it was about in the first place. My favorite stanza from any Christian music is from an old hymn called, He Giveth More Grace. And I think about this stanza all the time, and I have it here before you, and I want you to look at it, because it says, when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, and here's my favorite line. I love this line. And I, I promise you I've quoted this to myself thousands of times. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Don't you love that? When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has just begun. I think about Moses at the Red Sea. Now think about this. Estimate their ability and estimate God's ability at that moment. If you're Moses and you've never seen the Red Sea open, you're going to think this is a disaster. But if you're looking at it from the backside when God works, then you can say, well, God had that taken care of all the time. Real quickly, and again, I'm out of time, but I just want to teach these two things. There are two things that God has taught me about rule three. If you overestimate your own ability the outcome will always be embarrassment. True? If you overestimate what you can do, you're going to fail, and the failure will be embarrassing. Overestimating our own ability leads to embarrassment. Underestimating God's ability means leaving something on the table that's important. So it's so important to realize that God has the power to do what we cannot do. And even though it's a simple statement, it's sometimes hard for us to get into our minds. Number four, and this is, every time I teach this, this is everybody's favorite. You don't have to beat your opponents, 
just outlast them. Now, what I'm going to teach right now is so huge. I know it's late, but just really please listen to this. If you're a part of anything great, your mission is accomplishing the objective, right? That's simple. That, that's two plus two. So if, if you're in a great pursuit, the mission is in accomplishing the objective. But you're almost always going to have opposition, and that opposition is frequently going to take the, um, the form of people. What people say to you, what they do to you, what they threaten you with. It's just the world that you and I live in. If you want to do something great, you're going to get opposition. And the opposition will often take the form of people in your life. And oftentimes, you'll want to say, like I wanted to say when we're relocating, the job is hard enough. I don't need you know, the mother-in-laws or the friends or the enemies or the person who hates me. I don't need the opposition on top of it. Now, here's where things go wrong with a lot of great people who are trying to accomplish great things. Just please listen to this. When we start feeling the opposition of people, we can get into mission shift. And all of a sudden, the mission goes from accomplishing the objective to defeating the people, and that's when we get into trouble. You hearing me tonight? And it's natural, it's human. When you're going through difficult times and somebody just gets it in for you and they start trying to make trouble for you, all of a sudden, if we're not careful, we can take our eyes off the objective and we can think, oh, the objective here is I have to beat this person. You guys at New Spring know that I'm not political. This is as close as I'm ever going to get to being political. Our president has this trouble. The important thing is to keep your eye on the objective and not to do battle with people. Listen to what the Bible says. This is so big. There are two verses on spiritual warfare. I know I did this on a series of years ago on spiritual warfare. But there are two verses on spiritual warfare in the Bible that to me are the most important. Here's the first one. The Bible says we're not fighting against human beings. Can we all just take a breath tonight and say, wait a minute, I am, we're not, you're never fighting against people. Your enemy is never a person. Not at least not a human being. Our enemies are not human beings. Our enemies are wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world. So consequently, even if you could beat somebody, you would not beat the enemy that is really giving you trouble. So the first verse about spiritual warfare is our enemies are never people. Here's the second verse, and this is so big. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish, demolish strongholds. So consequently, biting, criticism, being snarky, being unkind, getting vengeance. Those are the weapons of the world. But that's what happens when people start feeling like their enemies are people. Our enemies aren't people. And on top of that, the objective is accomplishing the mission. So we don't fight against people. And guys, I want to tell you, <laughs> I've led during times of prosperity and blessing like today, and I've led during times of controversy, and I'll tell you what I've discovered. I've discovered that the greatest battle is not with people, but the battle is with myself. I don't know how many times I've actually said this, but I've written it down, and I've said, this is, and this is, my, this is my word to remind me when I'm going through tough times and I'm dealing with opposition. Here, here's my statement. I am not going to hit back but I am not going to move. Do what you want to do to me, but by the grace of God, tomorrow I'm going to be standing right here, and the next day I'm going to be standing right here, and the next day I'm going to be standing right here, and if I go down, I'm going to go down standing right here. 
I'm not going to hit back, but I'm not going to move. You know, here's the thing. You don't have to beat your opposition. Just outlast them. Outlast them. Now, that's Bible. Because in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, the Bible says, put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. In other words, the whole point of spiritual warfare is to stand. Because great things happen when people stand in God's will and do what God has called you to do. When you're God's woman in God's time doing God's job, nobody can take you down. When you're God's man in God's time doing God's job, nobody can touch you. So you don't have to beat the opposition. You don't have to beat the enemies. You let God take care of those. Your job is to stand. Just say, you may take me down, but if you take me down, you'll take me down standing right here. I'm not going to budge. I won't hit back, but I won't move. Oh, goodness. Can I have five extra minutes tonight? <laughs> oh, here's, oh this, this is beautiful. Battles are won at moments that don't feel like victories. <laughs> I grew up in Texas. The Texans are all unsufferable. I know we are. We're taught that when we're kids, you know. My grandfather told me, he said, son, never ask a man if he's from Texas. He said, if he's from Texas, he'll tell you. <laughs> he said, if, there's not, if he's not, there's no sense shaming the man. So that's what I, I grew up, you know. So I know we're all pain. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. There is a place and a monument where the battle for the independence of Texas was won. I used to live in Houston. My first church when I graduated from college was in Houston. You know what? I used to have a lot of people come to Houston. I never had anybody ever ask me to take them to San Jacinto. I mean, it's, most people don't even know about San Jacinto. But that was the decisive. I mean, that was overwhelming decisive. There was a huge win. The Texas forces overwhelmed and won, I mean, and won, and that's what brought about Texas independence. Nobody wants to go much to San Jacinto. You know where everybody, and I've been, I've been in Texas, and I've heard people talk from all parts of the world. You know where they want to go? They want to go to a little mission in San Antonio in Bear County, Texas, where 187 men held out, and all of them were slaughtered, and not a one of them survived. Why would people want to go to a place that was a, a horrible defeat? Because... For days, David Crockett, Jim Bowie, and William Barrett Travis held off the enemy to give Sam Houston's troops long enough to get in place at San Jacinto where they could win the battle. And that's what I've learned about life, is a lot of times you can go through an experience, you think that was a terrible defeat, but then when God brings everything about, you say, oh, that's when the battle was won. Oh, just please hear me, and if, if nothing else, just hold on to this. Victories are most, uh, the greatest victories are often won at moments that feel like defeats. Battles are won at moments that don't feel like victories. Number six, and I'll give these to you real fast. When you get into the, quote, endurance versus escape battle, it's the vision of the payoff that tips the scales. Galatians 6, 9. Let's not get tired of doing what is good at just the right time. We will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't quit. My dad taught that verse to me. It's one of my favorites. Let me read it one more time. Let's not get tired of doing. One translation says, don't faint. Let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't quit. We don't quit. Listen, guys, when you're in that battle of am I going to endure or am I going to escape, 
the one thing that will keep you going is a vision of what God wants to do. Now listen, guys, I'm telling you, and I'm just sharing my heart. The eight years of transition, of relocating, of relocating rather, that was brutal, but it wasn't a third as difficult as in 2004 to 2009 when we went through the transition. I've never been through such a difficult time. So many people, as we were moving to be New Spring Church, there were so many people that just, the good people, but they just couldn't see it. And, and it turned out to be just, and I don't even want to go into it. It was a brutally difficult time. I mean, I never was suicidal, but there were a lot of times when I would go to bed, especially in the summer of 2004, and I'd go to bed and say, God, if you don't let me wake up in the morning, I'll count it a personal favor. I mean, I'm serious. I'm serious as I can be. I prayed that many times. God, if you don't let me wake up in the morning, I'll count it a personal favor. You know what kept me going? Was believing that we were doing God's will and ultimately we were going to build bridges to people who were spiritually unresolved. And you know what? I lived to see it happen. You know, I, I, could, I promise you, and again, I'm three minutes over time and I know it. I don't want you to feel like I'm going to just go on forever. I promise you, I'll get through this in a moment. I could fill up a book, and I mean this, I could fill up a book with stories of people that God got here the last year of their lives. Now, if you just came to New Spring, I'm not trying to scare you. <laughs> I'm telling you. I mean, I could just, I, just amazing stories of people who had never had time for God who came to New Spring and their lives were totally transformed and they got many other people to come to Christ. I could, I could fill up a book of that now. I didn't have that before 2004. See, I've lived to see. When you're in the escape versus endure moment, it's the vision of the future that will keep you going. This and I'm through. Here's number seven. Perseverance may be your greatest achievement. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't consider myself great by any stretch. I'm not even, I'm, I'm probably not even above average. But when they're writing my epitaph, for whatever little I may have seemed to accomplish through the years, I really think maybe the, the best thing about me that anybody could say is Mark stayed. Now, I'm never going to have charisma. I'm never going to have a lot of money. I'm not going to have a world-class education. I'm not going to have the connections that a lot of people have, but, but I stayed. And I stayed long enough for God to do great things. And I don't know who I'm talking to today. I'm not even sure why God put this message on my heart and mind tonight. But I may be talking to somebody and you've got an A volume of the encyclopedia and things are getting difficult and you're about ready to check out. I just want to remind you that the greatest power is staying power. I think that's what the Bible calls faithfulness. And tonight, if you're in a place that God has called you to be and you're God's woman in God's time doing God's job, you're God's man in God's time doing God's job, just stay. Stay in there even though it's difficult, even though it's a moment of seeming impossibility, and you will see God come along and bring the harvest if you wait long enough. Thank you. God bless. Thanks for coming to me.